For some reason, my wife's family thinks that I'm like their personal IT guy. And ever since my wife and I have been dating, which is 20 years ago, they have always come to me with every cell phone problem, tablet problem, question about the internet and how that works, um, questions about computers and all of that stuff. And 99% of the problems that I have fixed for them have been this solution, and I'm going to share my secret with you. I told them to turn it off and turn it back on. And when they turn off the phone or the computer or whatever it may be, and they turn it back on, something magical happens. I don't know what it is, but all of the little things inside of the box or the phone talk to each other, and they just figure out how to work again. It's just a magical thing how all of that works. And so as we look at our lives this year, I think that all of us would say we need some things that need to be reset. We want to hit the reset button on some things, and we want to kind of wipe the slate clean and start over or start afresh or start anew. But what are the right things for us to start? What are the right things for us to hit the reset button on? Because there's a lot of things that I bet you've already had thoughts or maybe you've already put plans and practices into place to reset. And so let's talk about what the most important things to reset are this morning. We're going to go through 1 John chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 John chapter 3. Also, just want to remind you that if you are following along on the Bible app, the YouVersion app, we do publish the, um, the, the notes there for you to follow along with that I write each and every week. And you can do that by going to the events section in the menu of the YouVersion Bible app and searching for a live event in your area. Word of Grace should pop up. Just click on that, and you can use those notes. Make notes of your own. Email them to yourselves. That's a great resource for us. I like to mention that every now and again for those of you who are using the Bible app. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. Let's read these first 10 verses here and see what John has to say to us. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Stop right there. John opens this section of his letter up by talking about the love of God and how that should be overwhelming us, how it should be causing change in us, how it should be doing something in us. See, observe, take into account the kind of love, the kind of love. What kind of love did God love us with? See what kind of love he's given to us, that we should be called children of God. This is a statement of awe. This is a statement of, wow, I, this is amazing. This is, this is incredible. This is overwhelming. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's speaking to the return of of Christ, that what we are going to be eventually, we don't really know, but we do trust in His coming. Verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother." So here John is trying to paint this contrasting idea, and Jesus shared the same idea all throughout his teaching where he talked about the types of fruit that should be producing in the life of someone who has been made righteous by God, someone who has been saved, someone who has been transformed, someone who has been made new by the power of Jesus Christ. There should be a difference, amen? We should not be the person we were before we knew Christ. Now, John is not implying here that we don't make mistakes. John's not implying that we don't drift from time to time or that we don't stumble or get stuck. What he is saying is that the types of fruit that is produced in a life that is surrendered and submitted to God should look different than the types of fruit your life produced before you knew God. There should be a change. There should be something different, and it should be noticeable. Used to, when you didn't know God, you would go on sinning because that's all you knew. You thought it was normal. And the world loves to promote this idea of self-selected idolatry where we make a God out of our own idea of what right and wrong should be. The world loves to promote this idea because we get to select, we get to choose what we want to be right, what we want to be wrong, what we want to be acceptable, and what we think is unacceptable. And you know who wins the argument in the world's rules? Whoever can get the most attention. Whoever can scream the loudest, whoever can get the most cameras in their face, and whoever can gain the most sympathy, because if they can somehow build a case that we're right, we're justified in our actions because we think we're right and we want to be right because it makes sense to us that we're right, and they get enough of of a group of people around them to affirm that they're right, and then they become very loud with their voice and unified in their voice that you're right, you go, well, I guess they're right because they've got a good big group and they've got a lot of attention. And I guess it seems right. And people love to make their ideas elevated above what God says is right and what God says is wrong. And this is nothing new. This is the same problem that's been happening since the beginning of creation. God put two people, Adam and Eve, in a perfect paradise, in a garden of Eden. He set before them all these things that he deemed good. And then he placed one thing in the garden that he said, stay away from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In other words, the thing God wanted them to abstain from was this idea that they could decide for themselves what was good and what was evil. Instead, they should just trust that what God said was good was truly good, and what God said was evil was truly evil. And that's the same choice that's set before you and I today. In the world, it's very easy for them to just decide whatever they want to believe is their truth. You live your truth, I'll live my truth. And those are popular things that people say, and they are tenets that people live by because ultimately people want to be justified in what they're doing. It doesn't matter what it is. They want to find some way that they can make what they're doing right, socially acceptable, and good. And if they can get enough people convinced that you can't tell me how to live, you can't tell me what to do and what not to do, then they think that they're somehow justified in their actions. And folks, God has a standard that He has called us to live by, and that standard is holiness. And we don't hear about holiness much anymore because it's not very popular. But God has called us to holiness, and the true Christian delights in God by pursuing holiness. 
It's part of our pursuit of God. It's part of knowing Him. And we should delight in it. We should actually be excited about holiness. And those aren't two words that normally go together, excited and holiness. Like no one thinks about those two words together because here's where our minds automatically go when we hear that word. Holiness, limitations. Limitations, bad. That's what we think in our mind. That's how we value because that's that fleshly part of us that needs to be crucified. That's that fleshly part of us that constantly desires things that are against what the Spirit of God desires that's on the inside of us that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7 that he was warring against, where you know he's doing the things he doesn't want to do, but then he's not doing the things he really wants to do, and it sounds like New Year's resolutions, right? It sounds like, man, the things I want to do I'm not doing, and the things that I'm doing I don't want to do, but yet we see this war within us And we see that the true Christian is one that is pursuing holiness. And they should be delighted to pursue it. We should be excited to pursue holiness. Not look at it as limitation, but actually look at it as freedom. Because there is freedom in what God says is better than what we get to decide is better for ourselves. And a lot of times we don't believe that. We don't because we think we know better. And we elevate our thinking above God's thinking. And we think we know better And we don't look at the things that God would call holy and pure as freedom. We look at it as limits and boundaries and, and, you know, rules. And that's what people who don't know God will say about Scripture. That's what they'll say about Christianity. That's some of their biggest arguments against Christianity is they'll go, oh, that's just a bunch of rules. Oh, that's just a bunch of regulations. Oh, that's just a big laundry list of things that you're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And yes, there are things that God commands for us to do and not to do. Yes, absolutely. But can I tell you within the framework of a life surrendered to Christ, there is actually more freedom than you will ever know. And, and, and I know we know that's true, but do we live like that's true? Because the true Christian will actually delight in that. The true Christian is evaluating. Are you hearing me today? The true Christian is evaluating their life in light of what pleases God, and they're happy to do it. They want to do it. It may not always feel good when, you know, you get your toes stepped on. It may not always feel good when something gets brought to light that is, just makes you feel like, oh, that's ugliness that I would rather just bury or something I was trying to hide. We don't always like those times of sanctification, as Scripture would call it, but yet it is for our good, and it is ultimately for the glory of God, and we should actually delight in those things because God is purging and purifying and making us more and more Christ-like for His glory, and the true Christian should delight in that and should want that and should actively pursue that. Because there's something different in me. And that's what John was trying to say. John is writing to his audience saying, if you are a Christ follower, you can't just go on living the way you lived before Christ. There's got to be a difference. There's got to be a change. There's got to be something noticeably different about you. And it's not the way you did your hair. It's not the way necessarily maybe that you dressed. It's your attitudes, it's your desires, it's your behaviors, it's the things that you're longing for, even if you don't get it right all the time. And I know, I don't get it right all the time, okay? None of us get it right all the time, but that doesn't stop me from pursuing holiness and wanting to be holy as God is holy. Here he says in verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
We're constantly growing and evaluating and, and, and we're repenting and submitting and learning about the freedom that is involved in that and I'm happy to do it. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, wrote in 1746 in his book Religious Affections, he, he wrote this, natural men have no sense of the goodness and excellency of holy things, at least for their holiness. But for the saints, holiness is the most amiable and sweet thing that is to be found in heaven or earth. When persons are possessed of false affections and think themselves out of danger of hell, they very much put off the burden of the cross, save themselves the trouble of difficult duties, and allow themselves more of the enjoyment of their ease and their lusts. In other words, when people will call themselves Christians and they don't delight in the Lord, they don't have their affection set on Him, they look at Christ as just giving them fire insurance. You know, if there is indeed a heaven and a hell, well, I don't want to go to hell, that's the bad place, right? I'd rather go to heaven, that sounds like the better option, right? And people look at following Christ as some sort of fire insurance. And here's the thing about that type of attitude. All of us who drive should have car insurance, right? And if we have car insurance, we shop around, we go, man, I need that. In case something bad happens, we get the car insurance. And the only time we ever think about it is when we get pulled over, and we got to make sure we still have it and it's up to date, or if we get in an accident. Those are the only times we think about it. We only think about it when we're absolutely in need of it. I bet none of you got in your car this morning to come to church and you went, seatbelt, check, coffee mug, check, car insurance. Whew, whew, good, yeah, check, good to go. I bet none of you checked your glove compartment to see if you had your car insurance in there. Maybe some of you are really weird and you did. <laughs> you don't think about it because it's there. You're, you're not grateful for the car insurance. You don't get in the car and go, I'm so grateful for this car insurance. Man, I'm grateful for it. I'm so excited. I'm delighting in this car insurance. You don't care because you're done. You're treating it as an insurance policy. It's there if you need it, and you just go on about your life, and you rarely, if ever, think about it. And if you treat Christ simply as fire insurance, you will treat him the same way. You will only think about Christ when you may be in dire need. Your back's up against the wall. You don't know what to do. Oh, yeah, Jesus. He's in the glove box. And you think about him maybe when your life, you know, may, may flash before your eyes and maybe you get some diagnosis or maybe there's a health scare or maybe there was a close call in traffic. Then you think about Jesus. Woo! Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh! And you think about the insurance policy in the glove box at that moment or when things aren't going your way in life. Oh, yeah, Jesus. But that's not really delighting in Christ. And someone who views Christ that way doesn't really understand Christ. And I would even wager to say, I'm not sure if you really know Christ. Because knowing him is loving him. Knowing him is valuing him. That's why John opened up this section of his letter by saying, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. See what kind of love. This should cause us to marvel, not to take for granted, not to leave in the glove compartment. You see, when people call themselves Christians and they do not pursue holiness, they are honoring God with their lips. They're saying all the right things, but out of their heart, they're living as if there is something better than Christ to gain. 
They're acting like there's something else out there, and I've got Christ, so now it's time to move on to what I really want. And if you think of Christ in that way, it's very disingenuous, and I'm not sure you truly know Christ. Because it's the same idea. If you're a parent, you've experienced this. When your kids may get in an argument, brothers and sisters, they fight, you know, they're on my side, you know, oh, they're touching me, oh, they're looking at me, blah, 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 all that stuff, right? And then after they fight, what do you do as a parent? You get them together and you say, now apologize. And your kids, what do they do when you tell them to apologize? Do they go, oh, sis, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so repentant. Oh, I love you so much. Oh, come give, give me a hug. Oh, oh, I love you so much. Now, what do they do? Tell each other you're sorry. They go, did you just like say a word or did you just grunt? What? Like, I don't know. Like, do you have gas or something? What's going on? Like, is something wrong with you? Say, I'm sorry. And they'll go, I'm sorry. And then if you're a good parent... You follow that up with this classic line, say it like you mean it. Room full of good parents here. Say it like you mean it. Say it like you mean it. And then they think maybe if I say it more singy-songy, then I'm sorry. (laughs) What do you want? They're not genuine with it at all. You see, much like a kid can learn what their parents want to hear and think that they're doing the thing that their parents are asking them to do, we can do the same thing with God. We learn the right things that we think makes God happy that he wants us to say, and we speak those things, but there's no heart behind what we're speaking. God, I love you. Amen. God, you're the best. You're all I ever need. We sing songs about how great he is. We lift up our hands and worship you. We bow down before you. Yeah. We don't really even mean these things and we're saying all these things. We have no intention of doing any of that because it's not in our heart to do it, but we say it. And it's like we're rehearsing lies to God, saying all these things to God and God's like, I see your heart. I see what you really mean. I see what you're all really about. You're not fooling God because you've somehow said, I'm sorry. Now say it like you mean it. Okay, I love you, God. Do we really? Are we really thankful? Are we really really grateful? Or are we just simply going through the motions of just saying the things we think God wants to hear. It's not like, you know, you say the right thing and all of a sudden God goes, oh, you said it the right thing the right way. Whoo, I'm impressed with that. Wowzers, you use King James English with all the these and the thous. You said it the right way. And we think God's impressed with that, is he? Jesus said that, man, there's people that they're, they're speaking, that, like they're honoring God, but it, they're just... Their hearts are so far away to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said was going to happen. There's a people. They just, they don't really know God. They're not delighting in him. They're not pursuing him because if you are pursuing God, the true Christian who is really pursuing God, who, who who has discovered something that they are in awe of, they, out of their gratitude, out of their thankfulness, they don't look at the things that God is calling them to when it comes to holiness as a chore. They delight in it. They delight in being able to grow 
in godliness and Christ-likeness. They want that. They know they're not perfect, and that's why they lean into God's grace and mercy, because His mercy is new every morning. But at the same time, they still don't stop growing. They don't all of a sudden become okay with their sin. They don't want to just justify their sin and just treat serving God as fire insurance. Some people just think that if I can just do the things God likes, then, then God will like me, right? If I just do the things God likes, then, you know, that'll kind of reinforce my fire insurance policy. I'll go to church, but we go to church reluctantly, begrudgingly. <clears throat> oh, my wife drugged me to church again. <clears throat> Kids, I, let's go get in the car. Oh, I'm going to read my Bible. I guess it's time to do another Bible reading plan. Let me find one because I don't want to be the person in my small group not doing a Bible reading plan. Let me... Let me find a Bible reading plan. Maybe I can find one like for really, really busy believers, like a sentence a day. Can I get the Cliff Notes version of the Bible? Because I'm busy. I'm going to do this 21 days of fasting and prayer because I don't want anyone to think I'm not spiritual, so I'm going to show up. And, and we think God like goes, yeah, you showed up. All right. God's not impressed. God's not marveling at your diligence to continue doing duties and to continue to check things off of the list that you have created that you think makes you right in the eyes of God. Here's what true Christianity is. Go over to Matthew chapter 13. Hold your place in 1 John because we are going to flip back there and finish reading that chapter. But just momentarily, let's go over to Matthew chapter 13. This is true Christianity. Jesus is giving a parable here of what the kingdom of heaven is like. And this is what he says. Matthew 13, verse 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What? Jesus said this is what it's like when you actually discover value in following Jesus. This is what it really means. It's like a guy. I don't know if he's just walking along in the field. I don't know. I don't know if he was on purpose looking for something. The Bible doesn't say in this particular parable, but what Jesus does say is that there's this guy, he's just walking and he finds something. And what he finds blows him away to the point that he's willing to go home and take everything that he has and sell it in order to buy that field. That's how much he wants, that treasure in the field. That's how valuable, how precious that it is to him. And then also, it's like a merchant looking for fine pearls, and he just finds one, just one, just one pearl of great value, and he goes and sells all that he has just so he could buy that one pearl. This guy has nothing else, just that pearl. This guy has nothing else but this field and this treasure in the field, and both of them are content and full of joy. Look at what it says in verse 44 when it says in that second sentence there, after he finds the treasure, then in his what? His joy. It's in his joy he goes. The motivation for this individual is joy. It's delight over what he's found. He's overwhelmed, and it moves him to action. You know, no one had to say, all right, you found that treasure in the field. 
here's what you do next. You found the treasure in the field. You really need that treasure. It's really, really, really valuable. I need you to see how valuable it is. It's going to blow you away how valuable it is. Now that, you, now that I've explained how valuable it is, go sell everything you have and go buy that field so you can have that treasure. No one told him that. No one had to instruct him what to do next. No one said, go and get rid of everything. No, the man, his joy motivated him to go and to do this. His joy moved him to action. And what did he, what was he willing to lay down in order to get it? Everything. Everything. Nothing was off limits. Oh, there's the family heirloom. You know, we got the old grandfather clock in there. It's, it's worth about 10 G's, you know, passed down from family to family. It's the fields, the treasure in the fields worth more. Put it on eBay. Put it on Facebook Marketplace, right? <laughs> I don't know if anyone uses eBay anymore. <laughs> oh man, look at this gift that I received from so-and-so. Oh, that was precious to me. The treasure's worth more. I gotta have that. I'm willing to get rid of everything. That is what having your affection set on Christ looks like. And here's the hard part for me as a pastor. I want everyone, under the sound of my voice, whether you're online, whether you're in the room, whether you're out in the commons area, I want everyone to see the value of Christ in that way. But here's the problem. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm just a guy. <laughs> but I believe that the Holy Spirit of God is working through the Word of God to open your eyes and to draw you to see the value of Christ. And perhaps something is being even stirred in you today. And that stirring, I believe, is from God. And that stirring is something that can forever change your life if you will respond to that stirring. Because here's the truth that I do know, and I hope that you see today, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The other thing that the true Christian does is not only delight in God by pursuing holiness, the true Christian also delights in God by loving others. And that's what John starts to go into in 1 John chapter 3. Let's pick it back up in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him... How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For wherever our, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. You see, 
we should delight in loving our brother. Here John continues to write in the same vein of delighting in holiness. He's saying we should delight in serving others with the love of God. We should have the fruit of serving one another with the love of God in our lives. This shouldn't be something that we have to be given pragmatic steps and made to feel bad for not doing. That's not my heart. That's not the intent of this message today is to pile on something to make you feel bad to move you to action because I know that that will only produce temporary results. I know that it's only the Holy Spirit of God working in you that can truly change your heart. And for you delighting in God and pursuing holiness is not going to come through me wagging my finger. It's going to come through you delighting in God. That's where it's going to come from. It's actually in delight. Yes, we need to receive instruction. Yes, we need to receive teaching. Yes, conviction is healthy and good. But can I tell you that when you delight in God, when you want to pursue Him and please Him and love Him and you're in awe of what He's done for you, these things begin to happen in your life because it's part of the fruit of being in Christ. It's not more of you ought to. It's more of I get to. And when I see my service as unto the Lord, as things I get to do instead of things that I have to do or else, then all of a sudden his yoke is easy, his burden is light. All of a sudden I have found the joy of being a Christian because here's my fear, is that there are people who have been coming to church their entire lives and they have never discovered the treasure in the field. They don't know what it's like to serve God with joy. They look at serving God as regimen. They look at serving God as discipline. They look at, God, at serving God as getting it right more than I get it wrong. They look at serving God as karma. I'm going to try to outweigh the bad I've done with the good that I've done today, and I'm going to try to offset those skills because that's how I think justice works. And so I'm going to try to do better, and I'm going to try harder to do better, and I think that that's the message that I, I receive when I am a Christian, and that's what I'm supposed to work harder at doing, and we never find joy in serving Jesus. Can I tell you that there is a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory that comes with knowing Christ and serving Him? Can I tell you that there's a peace that passes your understanding that will guard your heart and mind that comes through serving Jesus? It's not just about you coming and trying harder to do better. Yes, we should be growing. Yes, we should be trying to grow in disciplines, and all those things are wonderful, but not at the cost of losing sight of the treasure in the field and the joy that we had. Because if we're getting into where it becomes a chore for us, if we're getting to where it's become just something that we're trying to accomplish, then we're trusting in our own works as a source of righteousness, and we're not enjoying the very one who bought and paid for our sin on the cross and delighting in him. Doesn't mean it's always easy. Doesn't mean I always get my way. Doesn't mean I always get what I want, but I have found joy in the journey. And can I tell you, there is a freedom in Christ. Christ did not come and save you to put you back into bondage. Christ didn't come and put you into bondage and and, and into yourself that now you have to do it. Jesus helps sometimes. No, you are free in Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. There should be a joy and awe, a delight, and there should be a desire in you that perhaps wasn't there before to now want to grow in holiness, 
to now want to grow in loving other people. And you're delighting in that because you know that it brings glory to God. And here's your bottom line today. The true Christian serves unto the glory of God by delighting in Him. The true Christian serves unto the glory of God by delighting in Him. That's how our lives become a testimony unto the goodness of God. Not by us trying to try harder to do better, but by us going, God, what you have done and who you are is so amazing. And, and, and it's become so real to me that these aren't the things I have to do necessarily. These are the things I want to do. It's not a duty to be fulfilled. It's a delight that we get to live for his glory. It's not, I have to do this because I'm a Christian. Some people don't want to become Christians because they think, well, I'm going to have to stop doing all the things I like to do. That's not the attitude of a true Christian. A true Christian should not be looking at following Christ as now I don't get to do what I want to do, but instead the true Christian should be saying, God, I want to do what brings you glory because I am so delighted in who you are and what you've done that how can I serve you? I get to do this. I have to remind myself and our staff sometimes when things may get difficult, when things may get tough, when we may get frustrated, when things may not be going our way in church leadership and the way that we hope things would turn out. And I have to remind myself and our team and say, guys, I say this often to them. We need to remember what a blessing that it is that we get to do this. We get to do this. I know it doesn't always go your way. I know sometimes you want to give up. I know sometimes people may be frustrating. I know sometimes you may get weary and well-doing. I get all of that. Believe me, I get all of that. But remember, at the end of the day, no matter how frustrated you get, no matter how, how many times people may, may burn you or maybe how things may not go necessarily the direction you had hoped and planned for, we get to do this. We get to do this. And when I understand I get to do this, oh man, it becomes a delight. And that's for each and every one of us, whether you're in uh, church leadership in a church or not. If you are a follower of Jesus, there is joy in the journey. There is joy in serving God. And here's the hard part that I don't like. Oh, I don't like this part. There's even joy in the trials and there's joy in the difficulties. James tells us that we need to count it all joy when we fall into various kinds of trials. I don't like that scripture, wish it wasn't in the Bible. But God didn't ask my opinion and he didn't ask me to write the Bible. He didn't come to me and say, Derek, what do you think about this? I'm thinking about putting this in there, but uh, I just wanna get a little feedback first. Nope, God didn't ask me. And so if I see something in scripture that I don't like, I wrestle with it, I do. I wrestle with it because I don't like it. I don't like that I'm supposed to count it all joy, but then I have to go, what do you mean, Lord? What does that mean to count it all joy? It means that I can still delight knowing that God still has a plan even in the middle of the challenge. Okay, Lord, I don't get it right now. I don't see it right now. And, and I, right now, if I'm real honest and transparent, God, I, I, I just want to throw my hands up in the air right now. I don't know what's going on, but Lord, I know you're good. And I can be reassured because of his word. I know all things are going to work together for the good of those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. I know, Lord, that even in the middle of trials, perhaps it will work in me a deeper dependence on you. Perhaps it will work in me a sharpening or, or even a sharpening of another person. Because perhaps maybe the, the, the difficulty is something in a relationship 
to where I have to go and be candid and speak truth and love to someone else and it's actually going to help them grow and it's going to help me grow because I had to stretch myself to speak that truth and love. And maybe everybody grows and guess what? God gets glorified even though it was tough, even though I didn't like it. Maybe I have to swallow my pride and go to that person and ask for forgiveness for the bitterness that I've harbored in my heart. Maybe I have to do some things that I don't want to do and man, it's tough and it's difficult, but God turns it around and uses it in a way that brings him glory and actually ends up benefiting me and purifying and sanctifying some things in me. It rips some pride out of me. It kind of peels back those layers and it's helping me to grow in Christ-likeness and godliness. And I should delight in that. Have you ever had a real friend come to you and speak truth to you in love and you didn't like it and you really didn't like them for saying it? I've had people come to me and speak truth to me in love and call me out on things before. And I was like, mm, I don't like you right now. I don't like what you said. Mm. And I get mad and then I start wanting to justify myself. And so I start thinking, I'm a pastor. How dare they? Do they not know I'm Pastor Derek? Do they not know that I've probably read the Bible more than them? I can quote more scripture than they could probably quote. Um, don't they know? And, and I go through this thing of, of uh, you know, uh, comparing myself to them. And, and, and then, you know, well, you know, at least I do this and I don't do that. Their life is all messed up because they do this. And, and I get all mad. And then I finally go, wait a minute, after I go through all of that pride and all that junk, if I'm really pursuing holiness, if I'm really pursuing the heart of God, if I'm really delighting in him, I will go, man, but they're right. Ah, Lord, forgive me for my pride. Teach me, Lord. Let me have a teachable spirit. Let me have the humility to be able to acknowledge when, I'm, when I am off. They're right, and they came to me in love. They did it the right way. Mm. Thank you, Lord. That hurt. It stung. I still don't like it, but Scripture says faithful are the wounds of a friend, and I'm supposed to actually delight in that. I don't like delighting that. I hate it and love it at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, I don't like it, but I like it because I'm grateful for it. Why? Because God is glorified. And that's part of me serving God. That's part of me delighting in God because I'm going, God, I, I'm delighting in you. And so if this difficulty, if this hard word brings something in me or creates something in me or rids me of something that I need to grow in sanctification and holiness and in righteousness before you, Lord, I, I welcome it. I want those things. That's why it's so important for us to be connected in Christ-centered community. That's why we shouldn't do this faith journey alone, because we all need people who can speak truth into our lives that love us enough to speak truth into our lives, because we need it, amen? And we need to have the courage to speak truth and love to others as well. And how to speak truth and love? Real quick, you're always wanting to do what's going to bring glory to God and what's going to cause the most good, not for you to be proven right. If you go to someone with the spirit of being uh, of desiring to want to be proven right, you're not going to them in love. You're going to them in pride and arrogance, no matter how sweet your little tone is. All right, that's another sermon for another day. Psalm 40 and verse 8. The psalmist says this. Can you bring that up? Psalm 40 and 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So when it comes to God's will... When it comes to his law, when it comes to his righteousness, God, I actually delight to do that because I have found delight in serving you and in loving you. So here is my question for you today. And 
And some of us need to just sit in this. Maybe all of us need to sit in this. Maybe we need to just marinate in this for a little bit today. Are your affections set on delighting in bringing God glory? Are they truly? Don't say yes because you know it's the right answer. God's not impressed because you can go, yeah, amen, I do. No, I don't want you to do that today. Don't cheapen this message today. Don't cheapen this moment here by passing it off because you think you've got it figured out better than everybody else. Let this sit on you today. Let this marinate. Are your affections set on delighting in bringing God glory? You see, anytime a Christian realizes that something else has taken place of their affections for God, there is an opportunity for a reset. And some of us need to prioritize the right kind of reset because our affections have strayed. We've kind of become like that church that's talked about in Revelation chapter 2, the church in Ephesus, where he says, you guys are doing some great works, but I have this against you. You've forgotten your first love. Like you've, you've actually forgotten to delight. You've left delight and you've instead exchanged it for work. So you can be doing all the right things that you think are right. You can be living a very moral life. You can have a lot of great disciplines, reading your Bible, praying, attending church, being in a small group, doing outreach, serving your community. You can do all those things and your heart be completely removed from every one of those things. So we shouldn't think higher of ourselves just because we're able to discipline ourselves to do all these things. No, we should evaluate where is our heart in the middle of all of this. Are we delighting in God? Or have we become so bogged down with trying to do all of the right things that in the middle of doing all these right things, we missed delight somewhere? And maybe today is the day where you hit the reset button and you, you get back on track and go, yes, I need to remember to delight in the law of the Lord. You see, we can delight in His Word. We can delight in His holiness, in His grace, in His sovereignty, in His love. And our delight should turn our feelings and thoughts into action. That's what should happen. These thoughts that you're having, these feelings that you're feeling, maybe even today, in this moment, those things should translate into action. Not because you were told to, but because you see the treasure in the field because you found something valuable, because you were reminded, oh yeah, that's right, I'm supposed to have joy in the journey. I forgot to have joy in the middle of pursuing what was right, and I got off track, and I started trusting in myself and looking at how better I was doing than other people and how I saw it and other people didn't see it, and I missed grace, and I missed mercy, and I missed his love, and I missed all of that compassion that he's shown me, and I haven't delighted. I'm almost angrily reading the scriptures. I'm almost angrily attending a local gathering of other believers. I'm almost, I'm, I'm, I'm begrudgingly doing it. I'm not delighting in it. And if you've been going through the motions and you haven't been delighting in God, I believe today is the day for your heart to be stirred. David, the great psalmist and the king, he said, that he would encourage himself in the Lord. Remind yourself of the goodness of God. And I think that times like this, where we're thinking about 
changing some stuff in our lives. Maybe some of you, you're wanting to change your, your eating habits, your workout habits, your money habits, your, uh, your time, the way you spend your time, and you're evaluating, and you're looking at all those things, and you're wanting to hit the reset button on all those things. That's great. I, I wish you the best of luck in all those things. But the most important thing that you probably need to marinate on and hit the reset button on is, are my affections really towards God? Because am I pursuing holiness? Am I loving my brother? Am I enjoying those things? Am I enjoying and delighting in bringing God glory? Is my heart really set on that? And as I evaluate that, what's, what's the answer? What's the answer to that? If you're evaluating, maybe, yeah, but man, I, I, that's, I'm glad to be reminded. And good, if that's you, awesome. Maybe today I just was able to kind of stir up those burning embers and, and kind of help keep that fire going. Maybe you just need a little stoking today. Maybe some of you, you, you've just been ice cold and you haven't had your affection stirred in a while. But maybe today there's some sparks. Maybe today God is opening your eyes because Scripture says that no man can come to the Father unless the Spirit first draws him. So perhaps today is the day that the Spirit of God is drawing you. Perhaps this was a divine appointment where God had preordained for you to hear this message today, to be in this environment today, for you to be watching online today, for you to be sitting out in the comments today, wherever you may be, and that you hear this message. And you're not supposed to hear it, feel this stirring, and then check out and go about your business. Something different is supposed to happen in you today. Perhaps today is the day of your salvation. Perhaps you thought you were a Christian, but you've been living just this dead works. Perhaps you grew up in a Christian home and you're just trusting in the fact that you grew up in a Christian home as your source of salvation and you're just serving God because that's what your parents told you you should do or some spiritual authority figure in your life that you respect, you want to make them happy, and you want to please your parents or please that authority figure, but you've never really delighted in Christ. You've never really found the treasure in the field yourself. Maybe that's you, and maybe today is the day where the treasure in the field has just got you. It's just gripped you, and there's something different about today. There's something different about this, this moment And I believe the difference is that the Holy Spirit has brought you to this place for this time to show himself to you so that you can unshackle all of the burdens that you've been carrying around for all of those years, trying to make everyone else happy and trying to do what you thought was right. And instead, you need to exhale and you need to enjoy and delight in who God is and what he's done. If you've been hanging around Word of Grace very long, you've heard me use this scripture because it's one of my favorites to always go back to. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul says it like this. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is your reasonable act of worship. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. In contrast to what God has done and what he's requiring of you, there's no comparison. It's it's not even like God needed or wanted anything from you. It's just that 
in light of what he's done, how could you not? Out of the joy and the treasure of the field, how could you not want to give him everything? This is your reasonable act of worship, to give your everything. It's reasonable for, you, you see, the world would look at the man who sold everything that he had to buy a field in order to obtain a treasure. The world would look at that man, and what would they call that man? Foolish, reckless, irresponsible. But you know what that man would say who has found joy in that treasure, who he's willing to give everything for? What would that man say? Would he say he was reckless? Would he say he was foolish? No, he would say, it was my reasonable act of worship. He would say, it's worth it. That's what he would say. It's worth it. Because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 